our topic today is we're talking about lenses. So by way of very short introduction, uh, when we read anything, not just the Bible, but anything, uh, we come at uh, that experience and not just reading, reading, watching, uh, listening. We come at that from a certain situation. Um, we have a context and the thing that we are experiencing has a context. And uh, a word for this is the lenses. So, you know, these things uh, that we have on when we experience literature or media. And this is true of scripture as well. And what makes for good Bible reading is not just the removal of lenses, because that assumes that that's even possible, uh, but rather the naming of those lenses and the humility and willingness to maybe try a different set of lenses on. So that's that's our that's our topic. And the way we're going to kind of introduce this today is going to some breakout rooms and we're going to read uh, the story of the lost son, or sometimes the, called the prodigal son. So if you want to grab a physical Bible or a different device, or just to open up a tab on your browser, uh, you're going to be heading to Luke chapter 15, Luke chapter 15, uh, and the verses are 11 through 32. And you're going to go into breakout rooms and, and read, so have a couple people read through it uh, so you're able to listen to the passage more than once. Uh, ideally, uh, try to have those two voices uh, come from two different situations. So if it's two different genders, two different races, two different ages, like try to have some differentiation there of, of who your readers are. Um, read it carefully, slowly, thoughtfully. And what we want you to pay attention to uh, is what's the problem? What's the, what's the big problem that's being addressed in the story? So, you know, traditional language might be what's the major sin that's being talked about? Um, but, you know, sin, it's a loaded word. So we'll just use the word problem. What's the big problem that's being dealt with? And uh, so read this through the passage a couple times, different people reading each time, listen for that big problem, and then just have a little bit of conversation around how have you heard this passage preached before? Um, what takeaways have you heard from it? And, um, and then we'll come back in the big group and then talk about the big problem. A couple guidelines uh, for discussion is uh, be sure that you're allowing... Uh, every person, the opportunity to talk. So if you are, you know, if there's a scale of one to 10 and uh, in the, you know, 10, 10 being you love to talk, one being you love to be quiet, try your best to move somewhere towards the middle. So if you know that you're like a seven, eight, nine, you like to talk in groups or whatever, try to bring yourself towards that five. And if you're one, you know, you like to be quiet, maybe try to bring yourself more towards the middle. Uh, and just try to be aware of that. So um, those who have been quiet have the opportunity to speak. Those who have been more chatty, I'm one of them, uh, have the opportunity to listen. Tanada, you got anything else to add for this part? All right. All right. So breakout rooms. Um, how much time should we give this, Tanada? Uh, probably eight minutes or so. At least eight. Yeah. I, yeah. Eight to ten. Okay. All right, so Luke 15, 11 through 32, a couple people, listen for the big problem, have some discussion about how you've heard this preached before, and then we'll come back. Here we go. Welcome back. What's the big problem? That's that's what we're going to ask. So what what did your group talk about? What ideas did you have about what what is what is the big problem that's being addressed? What's the sin issue? There's lots of ways to talk about it, but what did you what did you come up with? Somebody not me in our group uh talked about it's the concept of fairness. What's fair? What's, you know, What's getting what you deserve, you know, kind of thing. And then, yeah. 
Okay. I was in the same group as Christiane, and we also talked about compassion um, and what that looks like. Yeah. Um, can you be, tell me where you see that in the passage? I'm not, I don't disagree. And I'm just want you to be explicit. Like, where do you see that? Uh, more so in the second half with the older, uh, with the prodigal son and the issue with the older brother. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. We also in our group had the idea come up of an analogy or perhaps allegory of the younger brother uh, being kind of like the ancient Israelites, you know, coming and going in favor with God uh, and Jesus, you know, having the father role and that the older brother acts a bit like a Pharisee in saying, you know, you broke the law. There's no redemption. Whereas the father, the Jesus, the God figure is like, sure, come on back, you know? Yeah, that's good. Uh, Aaron in the chat put the theme of God's love enduring. So the big problem then being, you know, conceptions of God's love being otherwise. You know, another thing that came up in our group that I had never thought about before that I don't think it's preached often is that the older brother's concerns weren't unreasonable. It's that he can't drop them and he's sort of possessed by them, right? And it clouds the judgment. But it's like his concern isn't crazy. Mm-hmm. It's realistic. It's reasonable. It's just that he can't bear the burden of it. He can't drop it. He can't get rid of it or come through it. Yeah, it it clouds all else. Yeah, to his own detriment. Along those same lines, I think that maybe there's a little bit of defensiveness of the father on behalf of him. Like mm. this kind of thing of like when you when you ask for your half of possessions, basically what the son said is, "I wish you were dead." You know, like, I wish you were dead so I could have your stuff. And then the son comes, like, the, the younger son comes back, and the older son's probably like, are you sure about this? Like, he wished you were dead. Like, aren't you a little upset about that? Like, there might be some, like, secondhand defensive, like, protectiveness that the son has for his dad. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. What's the, okay, so let me let me pull some answers out of you. What's What's the most popular name? Excuse me. What's the most popular name of the parable? Prodigal son. That's right. And what does prodigal mean? Now, the phrase has come to mean something else in America um, or in English. But what is what does prodigal actually mean? Like dictionary definition. Dictionary.com. I've yeah, never heard um, anyone use that of captivity. And by captivity, I mean this passage. Like out in the wild. I've never heard anyone even use the word. Oh, okay. Sure. A uh, dictionary definition, spending money or resources freely and recklessly, wastefully extravagant. Yeah. So prodigality is to be that that's exactly it. That wastefully extravagant. Uh, so go to verse 13. Uh, so the son got together all he had, set off for a distant country. And there squandered his wealth in wild living. Uh, so when I've heard this preached, when I've heard about the big problem, it's wastefulness. It's the, you took, you took your money and you squandered it. And so that, you know, that's how the parable gets his name. Prodigal doesn't mean just a wayward, rebellious child or, you know, oh, the prodigal came home. Uh, pro prodigality is... Yeah, that wasteful extravagance. So that's one big problem I've heard. Um, now, the reason we're bringing up this passage is um, if you ask a variety of different cultures, English-speaking world, um, honor-shame cultures that you might find in uh, Asian countries, Asian nations, um, more uh, nations or people groups who have a higher sense of uh, commonality or community uh, that you might find in sub-Saharan African uh, people groups or nations. And you ask them this question, what is the big problem? What's the sin issue being dealt with? Um, they're going to give you different answers. Uh, so I tried and failed to find the original source of this. So I'm going off of memory here. Uh, but this was once like somebody once studied this surveyed 
people from different ethnic groups, nationalities, uh, and said and asked them this question: What's this an issue being dealt with in this passage? And uh, Americans, English-speaking Western world, tended to focus on the prodigality, the wasteful living or spending. Um, if you actually ask some people uh, who grew up hearing this story told, um, and you'll find this even like in illustrated Bibles or stuff, like the the lost son is usually shown with like prostitutes and gambling and like that kind of imagery comes to mind. Uh, where in reality, like if you go to the Greek, uh, as we, you know, we preachers like to do, uh, the 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 language is actually pretty neutral. He set off for a dis, di, distant country and spent his wealth. But there's this imagination that has been taken over of how the story is told. You go to honor shame cultures. Uh, what's the big sin issue? Well, it's the way that the son has treated the father. Like what Al said of, hey, hey, parent, I wish you were dead so I could have my inheritance. Uh, so just give it to me now, and we can get this whole thing over with. That's the big problem. Uh, if you ask the um, communities that have a higher sense of, uh, you know, community and not based on individualism, they're going to take you to something that we have not yet listed, which is verse 16. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Never heard a sermon preached on that. Of someone who has squandered their wealth, but and no one has come to the aid of this person, and so he's forced to eat pig slop. I'd love to hear that sermon, but we don't tend to focus on that. Um, Tanetta, you want to talk about um, the the um, what Amy Jill Levine has to say? Yeah, I mean, I encountered this a while ago. So if you notice, um, maybe you went right to. Um, 1511. But if you look at this, uh, pan out and look at the whole chapter, it's actually about three different story It's three different stories of lost things. So the first one's the parable of the lost sheep. Then you get the parable of the lost coin and then the parable of the lost son. Now, obviously those, those titles are, they are not titles that the biblical writers gave to this, right? But they're external titles. That's what my Bible calls these three stories. Um, and Amy Jo Levine, who uh, is, it comes from a Jewish background, she talks about how actually there's some indictment here um, that, that the father in the story forgot to count, that there's something actually lacking in the way, uh, and you see this particularly like in the parable of the lost sheep, but it gets carried over into the, the next parable, the sense that like there's something happening with the way that the father doesn't account for his second, his, his first son. So she actually does see fault in the way, in potential fault in what the father has done because she connects it to the other stories. And that is not often a reading. Like very in the West, there's not a lot of criticism of the father um, because most people read the story as a father being God, which is not a necessary way to read it, but that's what has happened in our context. Yeah. So again, we bring this all up. Whoops. So again, we bring this all putting, up. Sorry, do you yeah, mind yeah. putting the? You said that's really interesting. Where did you say you got that commentary? So for me, you're you're asking me. Yes, like where did where did you hear the connections made there? So I would look. So I I heard her talk about this on a podcast, and then she has a book of parables specifically. What was her name? Amy Jo Levine. Okay, thank you. I think she's at Vander. She's like a, a, a New Testament scholar at Vanderbilt. And again, she's interesting because she's a New Testament scholar. I think she may be an atheist, but she focuses on the New Testament. So like her like translation work and all those things end up being fascinating because they do come from a different perspective that helps illumine these texts in different ways. So let me type her name in. Oh yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, she's done. A few different things. Yeah. Yeah. So we bring all of this up as a way to point out the lenses that we wear without necessarily being aware of it. Of uh, we're going to talk about individualism or and individualistic ways of reading scripture. Of well, it's about 
uh, who do you identify with? And, and am I the lost son or am I the older son? And it's what this particular son has done. Uh, different communities focus on the feelings of the community. Different communities focus on uh, honor shame aspects that don't really enter into our conversation unless you uh, grew up in a family or a culture that has that uh, honor shame uh, ideas. Um, and is which one is the right one? Uh, I think is the wrong question. Uh, because the the Bible has always been um, a multifaceted thing, and your your two dollar word for the day is like polyvalent. It has a multiplicity, a multitude of meanings that uh, you can you can find within it. Now, does that relieve us of the responsibility of finding this thing called authorial intent? What did Jesus intend? Um, no, no, of course we still have that responsibility. But here's the thing about Jesus. He taught parables because they were polyvalent. <laughs> he taught parables because they were this multifaceted way of expressing truth. Jesus was not, uh, per, you know, he was not famous for, did not get famous for, uh, these very simple theological A plus B, therefore C kind of statements. He was famous for his parables. Uh, so what is the authorial intent? Well, the intent was to be multifaceted. Uh, the intent was to be polyvalent. The intent was to find the multiplicity of meaning within the, the text. Uh, and this is true not only of the parables, but of many, many places in Scripture. Uh, most uh, Scripture, I think as Eugene Peterson said this, uh, it's a shame that the majority of Scripture is poetry, and yet so few pastors read poetry. Uh, poetry is, is inherently filled with meaning, overflowing with meaning. And to approach the text uh, as a, well, it must mean this one thing, you know, does violence to what poetry is all about. So we become aware of the lenses and we try some different ones on. Let me just add one thing there about multiplicity, because I think it's so fascinating how you find that in scripture itself. Um, it's one of the things I love about, about scripture is that when you look at, for example, if you read caref carefully the flood story, there are two versions of how that story ends. But the scribes who are putting that together are like, oh, here's this tradition. Here's that tradition. We honor and respect these traditions so much, we're going to put them side by side. Yes. And you can find that in multiple places. So often we're concerned with what is the right meaning. But even in the Bible itself, the folks who are putting, were putting it together felt like we can let these things be in conversation with one another. And I think that's deeply something we've often lost as readers of the Bible in the West. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Uh, before I turn it over to Tanetta, any, does this raise up anything in you? Questions, thoughts, concerns, rebuttals? I had a question. Yeah. Um, so I was wondering um, how much um, stock do we give to the fact that Jesus was addressing tax collectors and sinners um, and Pharisees when he gave these three parables? Yeah, that's good. That's that, that, that you're asking exactly the right questions. And that gets at this kind of authorial intent stuff of, you know, our Bibles did not come with, um, chapter markers and verse markers. Uh, those were added much later. So we, so we sometimes have the disservice of having these like chunked out into pieces. Uh, so yeah, when you see the setting, Tax collectors and sinners were gathering and Pharisees were muttering. And then Jesus starts telling a bunch of parables. Then that's going to inform how are you going to understand what's going on there? Um, so, yeah, that's exactly the right question. So, like I said, it does not free us from the the work, the good work of doing Okay, what's actually going on in the story and the text? We don't just to come up, get to come up with meaning out of nowhere. Um, but we are also are not limited to this is the one right reading and all else must, you know, be burned at the proverbial stake. Okay. Thank you. All right. I, I, do you want me to do, you want to go princess theology? Well, you know what? 
before, yeah, yes. But let me say one thing, because I, I was looking for this quote. And as we were talking, I felt like I should drop this in. So I, I want to step back for a second, because I think last week at the very end, we talked some about kind of lenses and what we bring culturally, the traditions we come from and how we need to keep those on. Uh, and this week, we're talking about some of the things we may need to, to try to be aware of, take off if possible. I mean, we can't, you can't take off individualism, but, you know, like to be aware of. Um, but I, I wanted to just ground this um, at, a, at a different level and just name that this conversation is so important in talking about how to read the Bible, because the Bible has been, uh, I'm going to use a word from this great collective of folks called the Liberating Church Project. And they call the Bible a poison book. And they're essentially saying that the Bible has brought literal death into the world. Like it's been exported all over the place. And the way it has been interpreted has brought death, actual death. Um, And so being aware of these lenses is like crucial. Like we can talk about the technical things and all of that, but just want to name that it is so crucial to how, um, so many people around the world have encountered this thing. So, Anthony, can I share my screen? I'm gonna, I am gonna share one quote to, to yeah. ground that I find astonishing. There you go. Okay. All right. So, I, and I'll cite it in a second. I just dropped it literally as we were talking into this. Um. Okay. So this quote comes from. Uh, it's and now again. I'll give you the citation. Essentially. Um, I think this is when the Pope visited uh, Latin America, like one of the Popes, I think that, I think it was Pope John II, visited Latin America for the first time. And there were a group of indigenous folks who this is what they wrote upon his arrival. They said, we Indians of the Andes in America decided to take advantage of John Paul II's visit to return to him his Bible, because in five centuries, it has given us neither love nor peace, nor justice. Please take your Bible and give it back to our oppressors because they need its moral precepts more than we. Since the arrival of Christopher Columbus, the Bible was imposed upon America with force. European European culture, language, religion, and values. The Bible came to us as a part of imposed colonial change. It was the ideological arm of the colonial assault. The Spanish sword, which by day attacked and assassinated the body of the Indians, by night changed itself into the cross, which attacked the Indian soul. And I want to lift that up because, I, again, I just want to make clear that if the Bible um, has in some contexts and in many contexts been a poison book, that we're talking about lenses as a part of the antidote. It's a part of helping us to make sure we don't you we don't um, use the Bible in ways that can bring greater violence, and I'll talk some more about that in, in a bit. Uh, but we just wanted to name that kind of ground the importance of this. Like while we're doing basically a session and a half on it, is because of that. Yeah. So yeah, Anthony. Any actually any reactions to that before I pass it back to Andy to Anthony for Disney Princess theology? Any thoughts about that? The Bible as a poison book. The Bible as something that we're handling that has brought death. I'm just going to say thank you for saying that. And I'm so glad to be in a class and community where we can name that, as you said. I I, I agree with that. And Barbara, I, I'd follow up by saying, if any of you haven't seen, I saw it in Jesuit high school for a full school, uh, school assembly, but a um, the mission, that 80s movie uh, with Jeremy Irons and, and De Niro about missionaries from the church colonizing um indigenous americans and you know the the struggles and faith and loyalty and violence there i just thought i did that it's really something i found it i find it like like barbara said very refreshing to have spoken out loud and i find it refreshing to like i've been in churches that have said that like the bible has been used to poison people which like adds this like layer of like distance from like the way that the Bible's been used to call it a poison book is like a really bold statement that's not often made by churches. It doesn't it it presses on the accountability that's necessary from the church when dealing with the Bible, and that's appreciated. 
Yeah. And and the first time I heard somebody really name that clearly, it was this guy who's, he's a scholar, but he's also deeply involved in helping people po- read the Bible at like the popular local level. Um, he's South African. His name is Gerald West. And he, um, so he, he leads this center called the Ujima Center. And they'll do things like read to bring, bring a group of like um, folks who are struggling because they just realized they're, they're, they've been diagnosed with HIV. And they'll read Job 3 and talk that through and use the Bible in these really practical ways. But in that context, he started to really like have to name like, okay, we're reading the Bible. We're reading Job 3 to process through this. And these same people, because of biblical readings in their churches, they're also persecuted because they have HIV. Like it is literally like trying to reclaim something that is actually bringing like social death to them. They're out, they've become outcasts. And he just could name it so clearly and so well what the Bible coming to South Africa had done on a large level, on a large level, large scale. And then in these communities, he's involved in just popularly reading the Bible, their reactions and how it's used both against them and can help them find healing and wholeness. Okay. So we'll talk about one, one of the lenses. This comes from a article by Irma Kim Hackett. And uh, the article is called why I stopped talking about racial reconciliation and started talking about white supremacy instead. And she, she goes into the theological and biblical reasons why she's made this shift from you know, that used to be trendy term racial reconciliation to just talking about white supremacy. Um, so share my screen so you can see the quote. Uh, there you are. The term racial reconciliation serves the dominant culture. This is geared for U.S. folks. It serves white people and those who align with whiteness. The term reconciliation is relational in nature, and though relationships are important, the focus on relationships is anchored in white theology's pathological individualism. Jesus died for my sins. Jesus went to the cross for me. I know the plans he has for me. Uh, Perhaps you've heard it said, you know, if you were the one person left on the planet Earth, Jesus would still die for you. Uh, so she continues, though there is a place for the individual in theology, white theology in profound syncretism with American culture has distorted the Bible to be solely about individual redemption. So it is blind to the reality that when scripture says, Jeremiah 29, 29 11, I know the plans I have for you, the you is plural and addressed to an entire community of people that has been displaced and are in exile. All scripture has been reduced to individual interactions between God and a person, even when they are actually between God and a community, or Jesus and a group of people. As a result, white theology defines racism as hateful thoughts and deeds by an individual, but it cannot even comprehend communal, systemic, or institutionalized sin, because it has erased all examples of that framework from scripture. And here is, I think, the money quote. Secondly, White Christianity suffers from a bad case of Disney princess theology. As each individual reads scripture, they see themselves as the princess in every story. They are Esther, but never Xerxes or Haman. They're Peter, but never Judas. They are the woman anointing Jesus, but never the Pharisees criticizing. They are the Jews escaping slavery, never Egypt, the empire. For citizens of the most powerful country in the world who enslaved both native and black people to see itself as Israel and not Egypt when studying scripture is a perfect example of Disney princess theology. And it means that as people in power, they have no lens for locating themselves rightly in scripture or society. And it has made them blind and utterly ill-equipped to engage issues of power and injustice. And then I love this little Last line. It's some very weak Bible work. <laughs> She's coming to play. All right. So these are examples of these lenses that we bring. Am I the hero of the story? You know, David and Goliath is one I, I've thought about. I've often, I didn't have to do this for the table, but I've I've had it in my mind that I ever, ever have to do a candidating story or a candidating sermon for a church. I'd love to preach on David and Goliath, except we're Goliath. Uh, you know, we, 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 
I like to imagine myself as the underdog, as the little guy with the slingshot. Uh, but what if I am, I mean, the little part is true, but what if I am the opposing enemy? What if I am the one who's got the money and the wealth and the power, and I'm the one that needs to be taken down? Rarely do I put myself in that sort of situation. Um which, by the way, I preview for weeks ahead, but when we talk about uh, reading the Bible like a mystic and some imaginative Bible reading practices, um, you know, if you read a story of Jesus, don't imagine that you're the Jesus in the story. Like, what if I am the Pharisee? What if I am the Judas? Uh, and that individualism, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. we probably all got a card from graduating, you know, kindergarten or middle school or high school or whatever with Jeremiah 29, 11 on it. I know the plans I have for you. And again, we're not here to deny that God has good things in store for you, but that's not what that passage is about. It's about a community in exile that is being given instructions about how to behave as a community in exile. Um, so when we recognize that there are passages that are addressed to people and not just a person, namely me, uh, this can change the way that we see scripture. Um, the first thing that comes to mind is, you know, the idea of the problem that Jesus is coming to save us from. Is it merely my individual sin? I, you know, God looks at me and sees this uh, you know, horrible, ter terrible person that even if I've committed one lie, uh, had one lustful thought, then I deserve to be thrown away into the fires of hell? Or is the problem more about a creation and a community that has been uh, enslaved by a, a power and God has come to redeem the whole of that community? Um, yeah, my my son is calling for me. I'm I'm the one adult in the house, so I have to have to go deal with that. Tanetta, I turn it over to you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, any reactions to that? Um, and yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah. I was just kind of like, wow, like, that's a great perspective to have. Because yep, I can relate with relating to all those characters. But there's totally a story to be said for relating to the other side or the one you don't really want to associate with, but there's probably a lot to learn from, from looking at it that way. So I'm really glad to have that thought to keep in mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's hard. Cause I think that we also just struggle to understand that in pretty much every part of the Bible, out of the, of the context in which the Bible were, were written, kinship was huge kinship networks were astonishingly important. So while I won't say there's no moment where, you know, the individual is at the fore, like largely these are people who think in terms of the community. So I know sometimes when we talk about things like, you know, shalom, the idea of well-being and flourishing as this idea that flows through scripture to, to somebody in the West, like shalom and salvation sounds a little bit crazy, but because it's so communal for lots of people, it sounds like, oh, yeah, that, that makes sense. In a kinship society, like a society that focuses on kinship networks, it makes total sense. So, yeah. Um, also, follow Erna Kim Hackett. She's amazing. She's hilarious. She's brilliant. Uh, if you do not always already, like, check her stuff out, she's doing amazing, amazing work. Um, so what I want to do is actually take this a step further. And what always happens in the Bible class is I always look at the clock and I'm like, oh, wait, we only have a little bit of time left. I have questions. I have, I'm ready. Um, but I want to kind of nuance a little bit further this idea of Disney princess theology. Because one of the things that's really convicting for me is Ernie Kim rightly, right, rightly talks about how, you know, in terms of white theology, deeply embedded this idea. And... As somebody who's, you know, the table next week is about to start a series in Exodus. I mentioned that this morning. Um, I also have to think about this idea of Disney princess theology, like we all do. Um, so for people of color, like all around the world, the story of the Exodus, the story of 
the Hebrew slaves leaving Egypt where they had been enslaved, crossing the Red Sea into freedom, and then going into the promised land is this like foundational story of liberation. That's what we're going to be talking about in the next couple of weeks. It's foundational. It's really important. Black liberation theology, Latin American uh, theologies of liberation. Like you can go all over the world and find people finding hope and grounding their story in, in that narrative. And yet... It also, most of the time when we read that story, we also are seeing it through a very narrow lens. So let me pull this up. So a Native American, uh, I'm sorry, a, uh, a Native scholar named Robert Allen Warrior wrote this classic article um, on this idea. And he points out a few scriptures that I'm just going to read to help us think about, again, like what lenses we wear all of us when we encounter stories like the Exodus. So this is Genesis 15. Then the Lord said to Abram, this is a story of covenant, know this for certain, that your offspring shall be aliens in a land that is not theirs and shall be slaves there, and they shall be oppressed for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your ancestors in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, a smoking pot, fire pot and a flaming torch <laughs> passed between these two pieces. And here's what's, here's what's important. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your descendants, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the, Kadamite, the Kadamonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gorbishites, and the Jebusites. So in this moment of covenant, this moment that is, is foretelling of liberation, you also see a problem arise that has to be discussed. Here's another part of this. Very simple. In the actual Exodus narrative itself, This is what God says. I declare that I will bring you up out of the misery of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And here's Robert Allen Warrior's commentary. The covenant, in other words, has two parts, deliverance and conquest. But if you are a native person, you are the Canaanites. So even as I read this story, and you know, as, as a Black person, I say, oh, this story is, is, is foundational for the narrative of liberation in Scripture, and it is. There's another side to it that only, most likely, a person reading from this context and with this lens would see. So here's what he says. What is to be done? First, the Canaanite should be at the center, and I want to know what y'all think about this. This is what he says. First, the Canaanite should be at the center of Christian theological reflection and political action. They are the last remaining ignored voice in the text, except perhaps the land itself. The leading into the land, the promised land, becomes just more one more redemptive moment rather than a violation of innocent people's rights to land and self-determination. Keeping the Canaanites at the center makes it more likely that those who read the Bible will read all of it not just the part that inspires and justifies them. So what, are, what comes up for y'all when I say, when he talks about this idea of keeping the Canaanites as the as center of theological reflection? It's a big claim. And I, for me, it, I find it deeply challenging because it's, it's easy to find even stories like the Exodus and to feel triumphant in them. Um, but to keep the Canaanites, these people who were, at least in the text itself, they, they probably weren't actually literally conquered as the text says, but to keep them at the center, like, how does that, what does that mean? What comes up for you? Oh, I'll say, yeah, it's a little controversial. That makes me a little uncomfortable, but it makes sense to me. Yeah, I guess just, just hearing that, because I feel like we've, yeah, ignored just like other people's lands being conquered. We've, we've ignored that a lot, but yeah, it's a little uncomfortable. Not going to lie. 
thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Okay. I have kind of one more block of kind of idea block to, sh- to share. But before I do that, I was hoping to just invite us, if you are so willing, uh, we've named some lenses, but I was wondering if like there are others that come to mind for y'all um, that you've seen other people wear, uh, you know, that you're aware that you have that you think really um, informs your reading of scripture in ways that it's important to name. Um, and I'll, I'll get us started here because I think I would like to model vulnerability. So I think, like for me, one of the lenses I realize that I bring is I, for most of my life, have more or less been an urbanite. Like I've lived in urban areas. And a lot of scripture is written from the place of like rural peasants. Like in some way they are in the midline, not all of it, but l- large parts of it are. So I recognize that there's a lot I miss because I'm not in a rural context and connected to land. Uh, I mean, even most of Jesus' parables are connected deeply to land and that imagery. And this really dawned on me when I was um, teaching a, a series about uh, communal economics and I was like reflecting on the phrase, Jesus says that it also comes up um, in the Hebrew Bible of like, the poor will always be with you. And I realized like in a rural context, that statement makes sense because people like, yeah, there are always going to be people in your village that like their livestock dies. So they have a bad two years, right? Those things happen to them, but they're not systemic. They're not about systemic poverty. And probably if I live, like, it's not saying systemic poverty will always be with you. It's like, yeah, your livestock is that You're going to have a bad crop. And I just, I realized if I was more connected to the land, if I was thinking more from a rural perspective, I probably would have seen that much sooner. Um, so I'm just curious, anything that comes up for you that you would say, yeah, I realize probably this is something I need to be keeping in mind. Oh, I can share one thing. I was thinking about the other day because um, I can't remember. I was reading a lot of the Old Testament and like I was thinking of like how I guess one lens, well, just like being an American and like not really like fo- like fully involved in like stuff like wars and violence and like people fighting amongst each other, I guess, because I, I felt like I can't remember which book it was I was reading, but like, yeah, in general, just, just in like the Old Testament, a lot of like god saying you must go out and like kill these people i'm just like what (laughs) i'm like what um because i'm because i'm like i'm not in you know like well a country where there's like violence like happening like up close like that i guess like i but that's that's something i was thinking about i'm not like in that context so yeah and i'll name with that like consider um, the ways in which, and I find this in particular progressive spaces, like things like it, you know, it's controversial to talk about like the blood, like the sacrifice of Jesus and the blood. We don't necessarily always want to sing. And I'm not saying this about the table. I'm saying this about other contexts I've seen. Like, we don't want to talk a lot about the blood, but you're right. If you come from a context of violence, that language can be really me. Like it's rooted in a different way for you. Um, and so, yeah, I appreciate that. Yep. Anybody else have thoughts about like things we haven't talked about that you're like, yeah, this is another one of those things to keep in mind in terms of lenses, things we need to take off or at least be aware of. What you just said there was a little bit of a reminder to me of, I was lucky enough to go on a a retreat a couple of years back that talked about, um, Jesus ministry through food. And like the different like food items and like in the gospel in the Old Testament and the significance of that. And something that was said to me about communion that had never struck me was wine and bread were the staples of every meal. When Jesus said, eat this in remembrance of me, he meant twice a day, remember me. Every time you eat, remember me. It wasn't just a once a week thing where everyone eats bread and wine. It's like every single day. And that like totally like took me aback because I had never thought about what the daily meals of an average person in Israel would look like. Two things that occur to me about time, place, and culture that are radically different, I think, is today our conception or the average conception, maybe a less informed conception 
of um, LGBTQ uh, issues as, and then also as a second issue, slavery, what those mean today, what we've seen versus what they meant then and there, there were critical nuances and how they were understood or identified. And if, if you have only today's lens on those issues, you're gonna really misunderstand Paul and, and the clobber passages as, as an example. Yeah. Like the idea of a committed out couple that's not gender conforming and isn't straight. I, I don't know that that even really, really existed back then. So if you don't have that in mind, you know, you're not likely to interpret it very well, very accurately. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. So. And, and I do want, oh, did somebody else come on? It's just me. You can, you can ignore me. Oh, all I was going to say is I also, as we were talking about this, want to just hold McKinsey's comment um, in, the, in, the, in the comment section, the chat here, about also being made anxious by this idea um, of the Canaanites being at the center of theological reflection, because it feels like it pushes against the foundational idea of God always being the side of, always being on the side of justice and standing with the oppressed. And that's kind of a full circle moment. Like when we, that first class when Anthony talked about inheritism and how we'll talk some about that as we go forward and talk about some specific passages that are really hard. But I would say that, yeah, that gets at this full circle. Like <laughs> how do we talk about, um, yeah, some of those problematic texts and how they relate to the Bible not being inerrant. Go ahead, Anthony. What were you going to say? Yeah, bouncing off McKenzie's comment and what you just said, too. Uh, like Tanetta said earlier, there are multiple traditions woven in both the Pentateuch, so the first five books of the Bible, and the prophetic tradition about that whole genocide thing. Um, so there's not only just the go and slaughter everyone, man, woman, child, everything that moves and breathes. Uh, but there's also a different tradition we woven into uh, Exodus and Deuteronomy around not murder, but uh, either coexisting together or, um, you know, this isn't a lot better, but displacing as opposed to completely getting rid of. And then the prophetic tradition comes in um, with some different themes yet about all nations being welcome into the temple of the Lord. And um, like even Egypt, who uh, throughout the entirety of the Hebrew scripture is used as kind of a code word for oppressor and empire, uh, Egypt themselves in the prophetic vision is seen as a place where uh, worshipers of Yahweh will also arise. Um, so that's just a reminder that there is direction and trajectory in scripture of, yeah, there's some real dark, dark moments. Um, and those dark moments are often critiqued within the pages of scripture. Uh, two things uh, I wanted to say in terms of other lenses. Uh, one, and this is just the nerdy philosopher in me that wants to bring this up, but it is uh, the conception of time. Uh, so uh, we Westerners tend to have a very, we see time as an arrow moving into the future. And um, this is a Greek concept, but the idea that as it has telos, it has an end uh, or a goal or a direction that it is going. Um, whereas much of the ancient Near Eastern world, um, so the world of Israel and Babylon and all of that, saw time as cyclical. Um, so I don't know if there are any Battlestar Galactica fans in the room, but if there are, you might be familiar with the phrase, this has all happened before, this will all happen again. And Israel comes along as this kind of new idea that God was pulling a history towards something, and it wasn't all just going to repeat over and over again. Um, so there are passages and that... Uh, might go right over our head in terms of the good newsness of them uh, that are saying, hey, we are looking, at, God has given us a vision of the future, uh, and it is better. <laughs> it is making progress. It is doing something new. Uh, there will be a new covenant, Jeremiah says. And to this, this is kind of like ho-hum yawn. But to an ancient Near Easterner, this is, wait a second, this all doesn't, there's not going to be another flood? And there's not going to be another conquest, and we're not going to be oppressed again. 
Uh, and then the other one is, and this kind of bounces off what you were talking about, Skylar, uh, is the deep, deep entanglement of daily life with religious life. Uh, so this is true of the Jews, this is true of Greeks and Romans, that there was no separation of church and state. There was no uh, religion and politics. It was religion politics. They were all intertwined. Um, so when Paul goes off in Romans 1 about uh, certain kinds of relationships uh, being forbidden, uh, moderners see this as a way of talking about sexual ethics, whereas an ancient person would see this as a way of talking about religion politics, uh, because that's that's where those kinds of relationships happen. They happened in the context of a temple, and your temple life, your worship life, was how you expressed your political life. Um, when we see that as like, no, 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 those are two different things. You might not talk about both of them at the Thanksgiving table, but we at least know that they are separate. Uh, whereas an ancient person is going to see them as deeply, deeply intertwined. All right. So, so I'll note two things before I get into this last idea block. One is that, um, we are going to have a session just about reading the Bible. Cause I, I realize as we talk about all this stuff, it can be a little bit overwhelming to be like, how am I supposed to pick up this thing and read it? So there will be a practical session coming up pretty soon. I think just about like, don't be overwhelmed. <laughs> like There is good news that everyone can, can access. All right. Um, and then also, like one of the things I hope we can start doing, maybe we'll have even a little bit of time at the end of the session, is to, maybe in the chat, to name some of the specific, um, I think we we're calling them Bible bombs, like the specific passages that you're like, okay, we said all these different things, lenses, we're talking about, you know, the, the scriptures from multiple perspectives. How does this passage work? Like, we're also going to do some of that. So uh, I would encourage maybe in the last five minutes, we can have a little bit of time to start um, thinking, to naming, name some of those passages. Because honestly, I need some time to figure it out. So I don't know what y'all are going to decide. So I want to have time for that. All right. So here's the last thing I'll say for today. Um, so I mentioned that, you know, this challenge from an indigenous uh, Christian writer, theologian, to keep the Canaanites at the center of the story. I also want to note a really important, like more important than I can possibly name, um, part of, of reading scripture well is to keep the Israelites at the center of the story. Um, like we have to resist deeply seeing ourselves as the new Israel, which is something that throughout Western history has produced all kinds of problems. So let's look a little bit at that. So the name of, of essentially the, 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 way, the, the uh, kind of concept of doing this is called supersessionism. It's the idea that Christians have superseded the Jews, right? And I, I actually like this term better, replacement theology. It's, it's more obvious what it means, that Christians have basically replaced um, the Jewish people in terms of God's love and kind of being central to the story of what God is doing in the world. Um, and Willie James Jennings in his book, The Christian Imagination, he calls supersessionism the most decisive and central theological distortion that exists in the church. Like it is huge and has led to huge problems. Crudely put in supersessionist thinking, the church replaces Israel in the mind and heart of God. Here's another way he puts this. Europe, and, and lots of people have written about this. This was just one source I, I, I looked through. European Christians reconfigure the vision of God's attention and love for Israel. That is, they reconfigured a vision of Israel's election. Who's chosen? In scripture, it's Israel. But we often have reconfigured that. If Israel had been the visibly elect of God, then that visibility in the European imagination migrated without return to a new home, shaped now by new visual markers. And th the thesis of, of uh, Jennings' work here is that essentially that those markers um, uh, were given to, 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 to the white body. That like, this is now who's chosen. These are the elect people in the world. Uh, and there's so much damage that has been done 
by not keeping Israel itself at the heart of its own story. So for example, um, I think, let me, let me stop this. So for example, uh, basic narrative, if you've, uh, I used to teach high school English at 11th grade. So I always had to teach at the beginning of the year, John Winthrop's A City Upon a Hill. The students slept through it, not important, but <laughs> it's so clear. I think he literally says it, that, um, that he can, that, that this writer conceives of this, uh, this governor conceived of America as the new Israel. The Atlantic Ocean was the Red Sea. We're, you know, fleeing persecution. We're fleeing Pharaoh. We're coming to this new land, the promised land. Um, and then from there, the U.S. essentially says, okay, and there are Canaanites and Perizzites and, and Jebusites in the land, which are native people. And it is our manifest destiny to settle this land by any means necessary. Like that narrative, I mean, I could go, there's, there are so many tentacles of it, just even kind of the founding of the U.S., but it is a really important distortion to be aware of. Um, it, you know, it's, I, I, I love Jennings in a totally different book, talks about it allows us, supersessionism allows us to love a people's story, a people's language, without loving them phys- physically. So you get into all kinds of like, anti, you know, anti-Semitic, um, what is the word I'm looking for? Like all, all of that has come from anti-Semitism comes out of this idea that we can love a people, we're Christians, we can love their, we can, we can love a, sorry, we can love a story about a people, but not the people itself. Uh, and that's really, really important. Uh, and this comes up a lot when you think about like the Christmas, like an easy example is the text that we read at Christmas from Isaiah. Um, you know, wonderful counselor, prince of peace, all of those are in a specific context about a specific people. And it's really easy to just say, nope, this is about the Messiah as Christians conceive of the Messiah. But it's not first about that. And we have to also, that's also a part of like getting, you know, starting to read these stories at multiple levels and with multiple layers. And I'm not saying that you can't, you know, see the Messiah there for sure. But that's not the first way it would have been understood. So we have to make sure these stories are attached to the literal people um, that were writing them and that were doing this theology uh, to avoid some of like the worst problems also in, in the history of the West. So that is what I have. I have a last question, but do y'all have any feedback or Anthony or, you know, Okay, so my last question is just a pastoral one. It's, you know, we're several classes in. We've got a bit more work to do together. How are you feeling? Are you feeling overwhelmed? Are you feeling excited? Have we made you say, nope, I'm not reading the Bible today. Too much work. Like, where? just like, where? what's this raising in you? How are you doing with some of these ideas? Like, integrating them, thinking about them, any of that. I think uh, it's wonderful. And what you just said was so insightful because it put a point on what I think we've seen. I can only speak for myself of many often, but not always Midwestern, often conservative Christians who have this blind, simplistic, (laughs) binary pro-Israel thing, while perhaps even being anti-Semitic, and at the same time, knowing virtually nothing about Israel or Judaism. I happen to share my life with a Jew. My partner's Jewish. So we have a lot of these conversations. And you just, wow, you just nailed it. And we've seen this with like being, say, pro the last administration because of pro-Israel. Yeah, I just, so in other words, just keep it up. The good stuff. I love the fire hose. Keep it up. Thank you. <laughs> Noted, though, it is a fire hose. Okay, okay, <laughs> okay. Who else? How are you doing as you hear and try to absorb these ideas and act on them? For me, what's challenging is, it seems like a lot of what we're hearing is the Bible is problematic. The Bible is problematic. The Bible is a problem. The Bible is poison. Like, ah, (laughs) so that to me, I feel like, but still, it's still God's message. So I would just appreciate Right now, particularly today, I'm feeling like, oh my gosh, is there anything good that we're hearing about the Bible? And so that that for me is my ouch response right now. 
sorry, at the risk of, of speaking up too much, usually I don't say much, and on the tales of, and to build on what Christine said, that's the thing too. I think we often hear that the Bible's amazing, infallible, inerrant, right? We've, many of us have grown up with that. And then occasionally in a big city, in a liberal bubble, we often hear it's poison, but it seems like where we're headed, I'm going to go out on a limb here because it's the table, is that it is both. It is at one time both, just like Jesus was God and man at the same time. And we don't fully understand, and it's hard, and we grapple with it. And I think that's one of the beauties of where we're at or where we're going. Yeah, and I love sharing that so honestly. Like, yeah, I, I think, I mean, this is a book I read every single day. Like, I love this book. Like, if you let me geek out on this, I will geek out on it. Um, but I, I just, I, I think um, acknowledging that um, reading the Bible well, like, it, it is really important. And reading the Bible well often means reading it together. Right. So I, I want to make sure we're, we're not talking about just like I'm in my room reading it by myself. So I have to do all this work by myself. Reading it means reading it in community. And there is deep beauty. I think that there's a reason this text has lasted for generations and generations and generations and been carried for orally in many instances because there is deep good news in both testaments. Uh, but I also think some of these problematic ways of reading, like we have to be rid of them as a church. And to grow, I think, in, into the, like, the freedom and the fullness um, that Jesus is calling us to. So, yes, I want to keep in mind that ouch and make sure to, to, to acknowledge both of those, those parts of the story. Anybody else? We have about five minutes. Anthony, anybody? Oh, I'll just briefly say I also enjoyed the uh, last session about, like, great tradition versus great tradition, little g little t just just because i for example i was like because i think i I'd asked pastor tonight about this yeah, i was like can i like go back to like possibly west african like religions because i'm not sure because i mean technically that's ancestry wise probably that's where i'm supposed to be but i'm not really from there because i'm american I'm a black American, like, I, I, that's not my place, but I'm like, am I, because I was like, am I a heretic for thinking about some of these things? Yeah, but, so, so, yeah, so I, I appreciate last, last session's, uh, session, because I, hopefully, am not being heretical by, uh, uh, figuring out what my ancestors were thinking about, so, yeah. No, that's so good, and I just want to, like, a, like, Okay, this is this. I don't know if we've done a good job of saying what the point of today is, but that is the point of today. We are already reading scripture from a certain tradition, a, in my case, Western, usually white male, usually straight, um, like influenced by uh, the you know Enlightenment and the Renaissance and like all of that. I'm already doing that. I am not the default position, but the lie I've been sold is that my way of reading scripture is the default and anything else is forbidden and, uh, you know, weird and heretical. That is not true. It is simply, this is the one that I have been given. And that grants me or you, Chantel, or anybody else, their permission to say, but what if I looked at it from over on this perspective, a West African, or as Tanetta brought up last week, all of those little G little T traditions um, of ways encountering the world and each other and the divine. Um, it's not like mine is the pure one and I should give up that fantasy. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that, that's why we're pointing this out and spending so much time on it. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, Thank you, Christiane, for for naming that. And I will also repeat what Tanetta said of like, this is a book I am deeply in love with um, and have spent, you know, my my life dedicated to um, and need some of those, you know, reminders or, or classes like this are a little bit like a vaccine. And that it's it's reminding it's inoculating me. Uh, well, maybe that's not the right word, but it's reminding me of the poison, of the harm that has been done, and that I could wreak upon this world 
if I am not aware of it. Uh, and it's my belief that if we can, you know, become aware of that, then the phrase that Tanetta and I have batted around with each other is like, that enables us to preach a more beautiful gospel. Yeah. I can add one more thought. I know we're almost out of time. Um, I think that like the last couple of minutes have been very insightful to me as to what other people are taking out of this class, because I think that um, Wesley, I came into this class and have continued going through it incredibly eager to have the things that I was already thinking spoken out loud. Like there has not been quite yet like a single thing that you guys have said that I hadn't already internally panicked as to whether I could come out the other side still a Christian if I thought. And so I think that it's interesting. I think the two different ways that certain people are coming to this class, either from a standpoint of like the Bible's always made sense to me and there may be some things that I didn't get, but generally I'm moving towards understanding it fuller versus I think there's a fair amount of us, especially like those of us in the queer community that have come to it where we haven't just deconstructed, it's been demolished right in front of us. And so to be able to be told that like, no, at the end of this class, like there is hope is incredibly encouraging because I think that that's what so many of us were hoping for when we came in. And I think that is a beautiful last word to close on. Thank you, Al. All right. Next week, uh, we will be doing... uh, one more sort of you know bigger picture theological uh thing uh christ or cross-centered hermeneutics hermeneutics the way we interpret scripture um so we'll be talking about that as a way to approach scripture uh and then two weeks from now we'll be disarming bible bombs uh so if you can throw in the chat really quick any specific passages or topics um even even if you can't name like luke 15 uh you know the one where is good enough for Sonetta and I, and then we'll save that chat and yeah. be able to take a look. Yeah. And I'll name, I think it, next week too, we can start as we talk about these, um, uh, what did you say? Christological hermeneutics. Is that yeah, what yeah. 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 <laughs> like as we talk about some of those, we can, we could also take some of the, the scriptures that you're interested in and apply it. Right. Yeah. That's a good idea. A bit next week so that we are you know like how does that how does this this framework help us to, to read it yeah no one said judges yet that's what i was waiting for like, <laughs> everybody to say judges, judges 19 all right that's supposed to be in the chat judges 19 the one that gets chopped up into pieces yeah all right i think that's a wrap thank you everybody so much Thank you. Have a good have a good rest of your Sunday. Happy Sunday. All right, yeah, I'll see you.